0: Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. You know, here at Ministry Watch, we bring you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, all designed to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. Regular listeners to this program know that last week we began these Ministry Watch Extra episodes. We will continue our regular regular Friday weekly roundup of the news. Those are episodes that I co-host with Natasha Smith, but these ministry watch episodes, extra episodes or a chance for us to, shall we say, go deep uh, with one of our editorial partners. And today I'm really pleased to have on the program Michael Renault. Michael is the deputy editor of World Magazine. He came to World after a successful tenure as an award-winning editor at the Greenville News, a daily newspaper serving East Tennessee. So Michael, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Warren. It's great to be with you. Yeah, you bet. Now, Michael, I want to peek under the hood of the world editorial process on today's program, and I want to also talk about some of the stories that that you as an editor and as a writer have helped to shape. But before I do that, I want to... talk about your journalistic background. Can you just give us a quick uh, snapshot of you know how you got the world, where you came from, and uh, how those experiences contributed to where you are right now?
1: Sure. Well, I have been in journalism for over 10 years now. I went to school at Bryan College, a small private Christian institution in Dayton, Tennessee. And from there, Bryan's a small school, small journalism program. But one of the pluses was that we got pretty good experience with the local newspaper and the editor of that newspaper was our journalism professor and so got to do a little bit of work there in college with that newspaper the herald news there in Dayton and after i graduated from bryan i actually got a job as a reporter eventually became news editor and stayed there for a few years and got a really good smattering of what covering all aspects of the news looked like uh, especially in a small town and covered cops Courts, Local government did features, covered sports. I wrote up wedding announcements, Girl Scout, Boy Scout events. You, you name it, and, and we did some of it there at that newspaper. Um, you know, Michael, let me pause uh, just for a moment and ask you a question uh, or, or maybe make an observation
0: and get you to react to it. You know, that experience that you just described, uh, I think is just completely invaluable. I mean, you know, if you misspell someone's name, you're liable to see them at church or at the grocery store. And it, it it's the kind of training that am um, I making this up or do you see it too that
1: young journalists today don't really have those kinds of opportunities, do they? I agree one hundred percent with you, and that's one of the go to stories I have here in Greenville, Tennessee, where I live. And I, I later went on to work at the Greenville Sun, which is a six day a week daily newspaper, and uh, became an editor here. And it really was that where I I haven't worked for that newspaper for about a year. I've been with World for a year, and I still get go to the grocery store and oftentimes I can't get out of the grocery store without seeing somebody I know, either somebody who really likes me or somebody who doesn't like me or doesn't like the reporting that we did. But you're right, living in a in a community that you're covering is is much different than you know, national outlets or other outlets where we're writing stories and we were we were pursuing stories about the people we were living with, the people I took my car to get fixed, or the people who were coaching my kids in little league every year. So uh, that adds a, a certain amount of accountability and it, it makes you have a lot more ownership in your work. I think, and and that ingrains pretty good pretty good habits from the from the get go for a young journalist.
0: Well, I think so, too. Not, not only does it give you an attention to detail, but it also, I think, gives you a certain empathy uh, a, with real people. I think sometimes uh, journalism today is, you know, all done in our basements. And, and I and I got to say, I'm guilty of that myself. I'm sitting in my basement right now as you and I are having this conversation Um but uh you know i have had a lot of years of doing that kind of boots on the ground reporting and i just think you're right it just builds habits um that i think a lot of young journalists especially opinion writers and bloggers and um uh, you know, Facebook posters. Um, they they just don't have those kinds of habits built into their lives in the same way that, that maybe journalists of past generations uh, do. And though you're not of a past generation, you had that experience that was a little bit of a, a throwback. But Michael, I've distracted us a little bit. So you re- uh, had that start at Bryan College and in Dayton, Tennessee in journalism, and then you ultimately went to the Greenville News. But um, talk to me a little bit about your connection to world, because you can't came to World, uh, at least in part, through the World Journalism Institute.
1: That's correct. I had been reading World uh, since college, since my journalism professor in college had had told us about World. Really, I think one of the the very first journalism classes, he held up issues of World Magazine and talked about World's philosophy, which comes to it from our editor-in-chief, Marvin Alasky. And ever since then, I've been reading World and keeping up with what World was doing and um, After my first few years in newspapers, I took another job with a great organization, Summit Ministries, in Manitou Springs, Colorado, that does worldview education um, for high school and college-age kids. And it was actually through working with Summit that I met you, and we've we've become good friends. But it was also through Summit that I met Marvin Alasky, got involved with World, as you said, through the World Journalism Institute. I attended a week-long, they call it a mid-career course, so it's a course for People who, uh, not necessarily, have come up through journalism or newspapers or the media or anything like that, but who have an interest in contributing to world um, in any way. It, it just so happened that my background was in journalism. I, um, you know, wanted to wanted to keep my journalism chops, even though I moved on to a different uh, a, a different job, a different industry, so to speak, and. Did some work through the World Journalism Institute mid-career course, did some freelancing for World, eventually got the, the job at the newspaper. I, I left a year ago, the Greenville Sun and kept freelancing for World um, and had to had to put that aside because the newspaper job got pretty busy. Our family was growing. But then um Stayed in touch with Marvin Alasky. And uh, a little over a year ago, about a year and a half ago, he he emailed me and asked me if I'd be interested in any future opportunities with World. And by the grace of God, one thing led to another. It all worked out. and, And here we are. And I've been with World for right at a year. Yeah,
0: that, and of course, deputy editor, which is a senior role there. And, uh, you know, Michael, in that role, while you're still doing a fair amount of reporting and writing, your uh, job now involves shaping the stories of others, uh, contributing to and editing the stories of others. Uh, do I, first of all, do I have that piece of it about right? Is that what your role is there right now?
1: That that's absolutely right. So I'm I'm involved in putting together each issue of our print magazine. We publish every two weeks. Uh, so lots of lots of editing of those stories that are going into that. Uh, lots of conversations. I spend world. Our all our editorial staff. We were we were a little bit ahead of the COVID nineteen curve because world has been operating um, remotely. All our reporting staff and editing staff were all spread out all over the country. Actually, all over the world. Um, and so we all work remotely. So a lot of my time is spent on the phone or, or is sending messages to our writers and other editors. But that's right. It's, it's assigning stories. It's helping reporters um, go after stories, execute stories, and then working on the finished product to, to get everybody's copy into shape. And, and also trying to also um, be an engine, I guess, to make sure that when a big story happens and it's off our production cycle for the magazine, we still have some coverage of it on the website. Um, and, and World is an ever-growing organization. Our podcasts have become extremely popular. We keep launching new podcasts, new programs. Um, the magazine is a mainstay. I'm trying to really beef up what we're doing online, too. And we have a great staff of digital journalists who are offering new email newsletters and daily reports that you're only getting on, on WNG.org. Um, so, yeah, I have a fun seat every day of trying to help get my hand in several of those cookie jars and trying to help put all that together.
0: Right right Marvin used to Marvin Alasky used to describe I, I would hear him describe it as a front row seat to the circus, as it were <laughs> and that's that of, is exactly right exactly well Michael, I want to pivot from, I want to talk about the editorial process a little bit more in the second half of the program, but I, I want to drill down a little bit into a, a particular story now because you know we, we talked about your role in shaping stories and working with the other writers. Um, and I want to focus on a story that I think is an example of that an example of what over the years I've come to believe that world does really well, and that is to bring both a Christian worldview to the news, but also take advantage of what I would, you know, a team approach, kind of this as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another kind of an idea. And um, the story that I'm referring to is the story uh, that you helped lead and wrote the introduction to, story about COVID-19, that uh, you, you shaped and edited that story. Uh but other contributors were Sophia Lee, uh Kyle Zimnick, uh Lindy Langdon, Leah Hickman, Sarah Schweinsberg. So just that list of names uh already suggests that, you know, you got a pretty good group of people to work with there.
1: Yeah, that's right. And it was it was really uh the team of writers that you just mentioned really did a fantastic job of putting the pieces together, and so any work on the back end really wasn't that intensive, uh, frankly, but that that story came together after a weekly conference call that several editors across world's platforms, our digital platform, our world radio platform, and the magazine platform. We have every Monday to talk through how we're going to approach coverage of certain stories. And we've really tried to tailor those calls in recent times to how do we pull all our resources together across those divisions, across the platforms, And do more team-based reporting like this. And this is really one of the first fruits of some more concentrated conversations along those lines. But the conversation started with us talking about um, how, despite wall-to-wall news coverage, um, there's still a lot of division about the coronavirus, about COVID-19, about when communities... Should reopen or not reopen, what churches should do, what churches should not do, that sort of a thing. And we've been following COVID-19 since late 2019, early 2020, because we've got some reporters and correspondents in East Asia. And so we could kind of see what was coming. So... Um, we were we were fortunate to have some folks on the ground who were who were doing some early reporting about the coronavirus before a lot of American media had really uh, clamped onto it. But even still, you know, months later into the midsummer, a lot of division about COVID nineteen. So in conversations among the editors, we began discussing how can we report the truth, how can we be truthful and precise and accurate about what's going on on the ground in certain places, but also still. Um, not just look away from the debates that Americans are having about what our responses ought to be. And and so that conversation turned into this piece that you mentioned. And it's really, it's three separate stories that are all packaged together. And I wrote a short introduction, basically just unpacking what all the pieces are. Sophia Lee, one of our reporters, and she's actually a senior writer for us in Los Angeles, California, did what I think is distinctive about World, really on the ground reporting, as you have said, looking at the divisions that exist between Americans, but also even between Christians about COVID-19, and really drilling down to what some of the particular stories have been in a couple different communities, a community that was struck very hard by COVID-19 early on in in rural Georgia, um, and things that have happened in Los Angeles since then, and looking at how different people are interpreting some of those things differently, uh, and, and living within some tensions about that. And then a team of Uh, Lindy Langdon, Sarah Schweinsberg, and Kyle Zimnick did some reporting, really looking at how COVID nineteen has affected parts of the country that we're not reading about in the Wall Street Journal, or the New York Times, or the L.A. Times. Really looking at what's going on in the heartland, places like Missouri or Kansas or Nebraska, and looking at how some communities, such as refugee communities, are grappling with what COVID nineteen is doing to them, and and what you know certain responses to COVID nineteen is doing with them. And that's the kind of reporting that we're really not seeing in a lot of different media outlets. Um, and again, it's all coming from a, a biblical worldview. And then. And finally, Leah Hickman, who's a really, really talented and really, really uh, bright young reporter for us, got a hold of a lot of churches and schools and a few businesses and governments to look at, Okay, one one segment of the country says COVID-19, we've got to lock everything down. Another segment of the country says, no, 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 we need to go at it full bore, open up like nothing ever happened. But in the middle, there are groups and organizations that are innovating, finding ways to still acknowledge the threat that COVID-19 poses, especially to some vulnerable populations, um, and innovating their ways to trying to protect those folks, but also still keeping the economy going, still keeping the services that are essential in so many communities like churches, worship services, uh, like schools, still keeping those going. Um, because we really can't, we can't put everything on pause indefinitely until there's a vaccine. We've got to find a way forward. And, And she really did a great job highlighting what some of those innovations have been. Well, she did. And in fact, that whole package
0: is really excellent. And, you know, and I just think an example of um, what I would call Christian journalism at its best. And there's uh, precious little of it. Of course, I think we do some of that here at Ministry Watch, and you guys are doing it there as well. And it was just uh, a great uh, story. Congratulations on that package. Uh, Michael, before we take a short break, I'd like to quickly talk about another story. And that is back in April, uh, a story that you wrote about Liberty University. Um, I've written a story story, um, uh, in fact, many stories about liberty over the years, including One for World a couple of years ago. So obviously I have an active interest uh, in this story. But um, your story was different in a couple of different ways. Uh, one of them was that it started off with the experience of a student. You, you actually talked to some students and brought their perspective
1: into that story. Can you uh, briefly tell us about that story? Sure. Well, as the world was kind of falling apart because of COVID-19 there were a lot of questions about how institutions like colleges and universities were going to respond um in March there was one particular day in March uh, March 12th on a Thursday and then going into March 13th it seemed like the bottom fell out so many institutions businesses organizations announced they were closing or shutting down or you know sports leagues postponing seasons that sort of a thing um At that time, a lot of colleges and universities were grappling with what to do. Liberty University was one of those. But I guess now former president Jerry Falwell Jr., for several days, had been making a lot of comments, kind of downplaying the seriousness of COVID-19 and and referring to it as the flu and Kung flu. At one point on Fox News, he um, insinuated that it was a, a made up um, conspiracy or that it maybe was a bio weapon from North Korea. I, you know, I don't know, pick one. But um, anyways, there was a lot of scrutiny about Liberty's, Liberty's response, um, partly because of the comments that Jerry Falwell Jr. W- was making publicly that, that seemed to downplay what was going on. Um, Liberty ultimately decided uh, in the semester to still have students who wanted to be there on campus to, to have them be on campus they were going to move everything to online teaching but if students wanted to be on campus they could do that. Well, a lot of students began talking about some of the conditions on campus and how a lot of students weren't taking things seriously. So I began trying to reach out to some of the students that I, I had heard about and through you know just sources that I had tried to talk to several of them in a story like that, Warren, it's really ideal for if you're going to write about something like that to go get your feet on the ground yourself, go and um, observe, watch, look, and pick up those details yourself as reporters so you can go and, and be sure you're describing things accurately and precisely. With COVID-19 and trying to be take precautions, be careful, we didn't really have that luxury in this case. So I talked to several different students at Liberty, a lot of students I didn't quote in the story either, about what was going on. Um, what conditions were like? Was Liberty taking the proper precautions? What were attitudes of students and, and, and that sort of thing? And later on in the story, uh, it, it took on kind of a, a, a different tone because at that point, the New York Times had reported that about a dozen students had come back to Liberty's campus and it had infected other students with COVID-19. It ended up not being true. And there, were, uh, there was pushback between Liberty and the, and the New York Times about um, a particular doctor that the New York Times had quoted about that, who had some connections to the Liberty campus. And that's an example of, there are a lot of commentators out there um, online who were you know, taking Liberty side or taking the New York Times side. But I wanted to go and talk to that doctor that the New York Times quoted. And the doctor told me, it's in the story, that the information he gave to the New York times was not what the times eventually reported, even in the first headline they published on a Sunday afternoon about that situation. Um, and so now fast forwarding several months later, Liberty university has sued the New York times for defamation over that story and their, and their reporting of that whole situation. Um, but again, just trying to look at how we go about things and, and why we want to pursue things the way we do, what that lawsuit's going to end up hinging on as as the two parties litigate that is what that doctor told the Times reporter and and how that played out. And that's when I just decided to pick up the phone and, and call that doctor and, and ask him point blank, what did you tell the Times and what's really going on at Liberty?
0: Well, that's right. You know, Michael, I thought that was a really great story and an important contribution to the cultural conversation as well. So congratulations on that story as well. You know, Michael, we've got to take a short break, but when we come back, I want you to walk our listeners through an editorial meeting at World. We mentioned it a few moments ago, but I want to, you know, just kind of walk through the process, how it happens and what gets done there. Uh, I'm Warren Smith. This week, my guest is Michael Renaud with World Magazine. You're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast, and we'll return after this short break.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. That's SaveTheStorks.com.
0: Welcome back. I'm Warren Smith with my guest this week, the deputy editor of World News Group, uh, Michael Renault. And Michael, before the break, uh, I mentioned World's editorial meetings, uh, which uh, when I was there at World, (laughs) I spent about seven or eight years at World, took place every two weeks,
1: but you mentioned a meeting that takes place every week. So are there two different meetings now? What's going on? Yeah. So as I mentioned, we have three different divisions as part of the editorial department. We've got the magazine side, which I spend most of my time working on. We've got our world radio division, which is putting out all the great podcasts, including listening in your other other program. Um, but they're churning out a daily podcast, several other weekly podcasts, and special programs throughout the year. And we also have World Digital, and they're putting pieces up on our website uh, called the Sift, which are brief news items of the most important news uh, every day, and coming from a you know a biblical worldview from our our view on things. Um, putting up several roundups is what we call them every week, but these are. Um, stories that are focused on certain topics that we really try to gear a lot of our coverage towards. So we've got a lot of engines firing uh, in the editorial department at World. So earlier this year is right at the beginning of the year. um, As World continues to grow and we're expanding what we're doing, it became all the more important for really... Each of the different divisions, which they're not—we're not totally independent of each other—but we all have our own staffs. We all have our own leadership within those divisions. It became really important for those divisions to really have concentrated conversations on, okay, what are the things that we've we've got our hands on right now? What are the stories that we need to be watching out for? And how? I, I, again, I mentioned earlier in the program, what are ways that we can pull our resources together and try to do more team-based reporting? Uh, The example being um, the story I mentioned earlier. By the way, from that story on the COVID-19 situation, we ended up having a couple really good podcast segments, uh, podcast stories on our our daily program about that too. And that comes from getting reporters working together from the different divisions. So every Monday, that conversation happens among the editors of the different divisions. So that way we're all aligned, we're moving in the same direction, hopefully, and, and are able to... Uh, develop good synergy among the different divisions at World. In addition to that, in the every two-week meeting that you referred to is a meeting of the magazine team. Before we began this cross-divisional meeting, uh, representatives from the other divisions would also sit in on the magazine meeting. Um, since we've picked up those weekly editors' meetings, now the, the magazine meeting is really just for the staff of the magazine. So reporters, editors, uh, our designers who are who are physically laying out the magazine every two weeks, and it's it's a time to go through and see what it, what is on everybody's plate to talk about what are the stories that we need to be looking looking forward to and how do we go about those, and they can be really fun meetings sometimes. Uh, we we had one of those meetings yesterday in which we were discussing a pretty sensitive story, and. We're all helping the reporter vet this particular story, making sure that all I's are dotted, T's are crossed. And it doesn't take the place of good, uh, careful and precise editing that an editor does with one particular writer on one particular story. But as you alluded to earlier, iron sharpens iron. We can help each other answer questions, look for sources, uh, see a story from a different perspective that maybe the the writer who's working on it hadn't thought about before. But these can be really fun and interesting meetings. And of course, it helps editors to know how to plan the next few issues, helps our designers know what kinds of visual elements they need to be thinking about as we're we're putting together that next issue of the magazine.
0: Yeah, you know, Michael, when I was at World and was attending those meetings every two weeks, I, I think that was the part of it that um, I enjoyed the most was um, uh, kind of both the practical side of helping the, you know, the editors and the graphic artists and others you know, kind of know what's going to be in the magazine and setting deadlines and, you know, getting commitments and how many words does, you know, to, is this story going to be, but but also kind of that free form back and forth. Have you looked at this perspective? And, you know, Marvin in particular, Marvin Alasky would say, well, you know, we reported on this. Ten years ago, or sometimes twenty years ago, and that would be, you know, maybe something that a new reporter wouldn't have known um, without uh, that kind of, you know, interaction with someone like Marvin, who'd been been around for a long time. It was a, it was a real, um, you know, helpful process. But I want to fast forward a little bit. So a story gets assigned. You go through that editorial process. Finally, a story gets turned in by a writer by a reporter. It might be Sophia Lee in Los Angeles. It might be one of your, you know, reporters in in East Asia, as you mentioned. But wherever it comes from, it comes back. What happens to the story from there? What kind of a process do you guys go through to make sure that that story is fair and
1: accurate, factually correct, before it actually goes into the magazine? Sure. Well, a a lot of times the writer on a particular story has been talking with an editor throughout the reporting process and throughout the drafting process. So, um, a lot of times there's already been quite a bit of work between a particular editor and a particular writer on a piece. And so there's there, there's already a working understanding of what the piece is going to look like, particularly with some of the very sensitive stories that we do. But generally, after a writer turns a draft in, um, one of the editors, a lot of the times it's Tim Lamer, who's the magazine editor, or myself, or Marvin Alasky, our editor-in-chief, or, or Daniel James Devine, who edits certain parts of the magazine in particular, um, and also leads our Caleb team, our investigative unit right now. Um, One of us will take a look at that story and make sure that structurally uh, it works out. I mean, when you're writing a 2,000 or 2,500-word story, um, you've got to be intentional about how you're laying the story out for the reader. What kind of journey you're taking the reader on and some structures just work and some structures just don't. So usually that top bit of editing is looking at the story structure, making sure that um, it it makes sense. The reader is going to understand why you're going from point A to point B to point C in a story. Um, Also looking for any kind of Holes in the story, either something doesn't make logical sense, or there's a question that the story brings up but makes no attempt to answer. That's going to leave a reader hanging or or wondering what's going on. And there's back and forth to that. Um, We typically try, unless we're on a really tight time deadline, we try to make sure those those writers are looking at those edits and looking at those revisions and answering any questions an editor has. But from there, once the the writer and the editor is happy with the product. Uh, it goes into our production cycle uh, where our designers are in, we, we also try, as soon as we get a draft of the story, we try to pass along that unedited draft to our designers too, so they can already be looking at what photos need to be lined up. Um, we we do commission photographers all around the country, all around the world, to go and shoot photos to go along with our stories. And so ideally, a story's coming in so far in advance, a draft is that we can get that to our designers pretty quickly and they can get art lined up for it pretty fast. Um, but once we've done... Um, you know, good bit of editing on a story. It goes to our designers. They're working on it for a couple of days to get it into the magazine format, making sure that the the visual layout of the story matches what the story is about and making sure that layout complements what we're getting at with the story. Um from there, it goes through more rounds of proofreading. It goes through at least three more sets of eyes for proofreading, making sure everything is, um, making sure there are no typos, making sure everything makes logical sense, that flows okay. Um, and then from there, it's it goes online or it goes in the print version, and then goes online, just depending on what the needs of the story are, and it you know eventually winds its way into the hands of our readers. Um, I, I should say too that we publish a fair number of investigative stories of very sensitive stories that if we're not careful, uh, you know, it's easy to misrepresent particular people in a story. If you're not careful, if you're not being precise, you also have to be worried about if somebody reads a story that's critical and there are problems with the story, you know, we're looking at a potential lawsuit in addition to bearing false witness, which is absolutely not what we want to do. So, and Warren, you've been through a few of these sessions. I've been through a few of these oh, sessions. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> on the deep investigative stuff, on the really sensitive stuff, an editor is going over that story line by line on the phone with the writer and saying, how do you know this? All right. You say that Person X was at this place on June 4th at 7 4 p.m. How do you know that? Read there did you see that person do you have if if there's something controversial here and you've got somebody who's disparaging another person, do we have two or more witnesses to keep in line with models set before us in Matthew 18? Do you have two or more witnesses to corroborate what, what we're doing with this? Um, we're not like some other news outlets, we're not gonna base a lot of our reporting off of anonymous sources and and give cover to people who wanna who want to disparage somebody else while having some skin in the game, so to speak, about that. And so those investigative pieces and those sensitive stories we really go through with a you know a fine-tooth comb to make sure every single line, every single sentence uh, checks out and we've got the corroboration, the backup for what we're putting down on the page.
0: Well, you know, Michael, I really appreciate you sort of going at some length through that process for a couple of reasons. Number one is that uh, I don't think a lot of, you know, uh, listeners maybe will realize just what an elaborate process it is. It's not just a matter of, you know, sitting in front of your keyboard and uh, sort of spewing your guts out onto a page. I mean, it's a it's a very meticulous process of reporting and fact-checking and editing and and defending what you've written uh, to an editor, if any of it's controversial. I can tell you that at Ministry Watch, we're a much smaller organization, but we also try to follow a similar process, uh, that we'll have multiple people look at uh, every story, and whenever there's a sensitive story, and of course, I do a lot of the investigative reporting at Ministry Watch, I'll often um, uh, impose on friendships. Like, you, you know, Michael, I've sent you stories from time to time and asked you uh, to take a look at them for me, and I'm grateful for that that kind of input because, you know, this kind of real reporting and not just opinion writing is so vital to getting things right in the public conversation, having a credible voice and a credible witness in the public conversation. And I'm just so grateful to World for what it does. And I'm also um, grateful to World for their example to organizations like ours, Ministry Watch, um, which is um, trying to follow in World's footsteps in many ways as well.
1: Yeah, well, I no, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And you're right, th- to do the real reporting It takes to understand what's going on in sometimes complex or just murky situations. It it takes time. It takes resources. It takes energy. Um, People who've invested in in Ministry Watch understand that, and that's why they do that. The people who've invested in in World and our our members and readers understand that, too. And that's why they graciously send financial resources, but also prayer— um, up for us to, to help us do that. And, and frankly, Warren, I know you agree with this, and you've spent so much of your career writing about stuff like this. It really ought to be Christians who are holding not just the world to high standards, but fellow Christians, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to high standards, because Scripture holds us to high standards. And so we ought to be willing to look at, with an honest eye, and uh, tell the truth about things that, that need our attention, even if those truths are uncomfortable for some people, even if they're inconvenient for some people, even if they're just ugly. Um, we need to be willing to do that. Christians have a high calling to, to speak the truth and to hold each other to a high account. Um, so I, I know you get that and, and your audience, your listeners and your readers at Ministry Watch get that, but um, it's nice to have it's nice to have co-laborers in, in those sorts of matters.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I really appreciate you saying that. Of course, you know you're speaking my language there, so I really appreciate you saying that. You know, Michael, we're pretty much out of time, but just real quickly, if you don't mind, um,
1: what's coming up in the world? What's on the agenda? Well, we've got several things. There is this little thing called... uh well, what is it? Oh, the election that's that's going on right now. There are so many things going on in the year 2020. Sometimes <laughs> right. it's easy to forget about, uh, about that. So we've got Jamie Dean, our national editor, who does a fantastic job covering all things related to politics and particularly during elections. And she's continued just to crank out story after story this year that... Shed light on the kinds of things that you know. Not necessarily all the big outlets are covering. She just finished up a, a really good piece about Joe Biden and looking at his political past. But she's got more coverage planned of the ongoing campaigns and and some particular issues with regard to uh, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and their their campaigns. Um, one thing that uh, may I tell you. Happened really fast. Last week, as we're recording this, last week the explosion happened in Beirut, uh, and has just wreaked a whole lot of havoc. Mindy Bell's, our senior editor, and she really leads our charge in terms of foreign coverage. She she had just, in fact, filed a story that is uh, in the upcoming issue of World Magazine on on Syria. And one of her sources for that Syria story happened to be in Beirut, and. Um, ended up, she just had filed that story and the explosion happened in Beirut. And she had worked hard on that serious story. She immediately began picking up the phone, emailing people, and got some got some pretty compelling accounts of what it, what was happening in the first 24 hours of that explosion in Beirut. She ended up just a couple of days later hopping on a plane and flying to Beirut from the U.S. And had spent the last several days there reporting. So we're going to have lots more coverage of what's happened in Beirut. And one of the things about that explosion, it, it took place in an area of Beirut where there are a lot of Christians, Christian churches, Christian neighborhoods. And so she's really keyed into how Christians are recovering themselves, but well not just recovering themselves, they're helping their city recover in some really dark and perilous times um, right after that explosion. So those are, those are just some things to look forward to from us. Well, I
0: certainly do look forward to those. Of course, you know I love Mindy's reporting, and it'll be uh, great to, uh, uh, to read those accounts. I know they'll be fantastic. We know, Michael, we need to bring our time to a close, and I just want to remind everybody that you can find out uh, more about the stories that we've discussed today, the World Magazine stories, by going to the world website, which is WNG.org. That stands for World News Group, WNG.org. There's a lot of navigation on that front page that'll take you both to the podcast side or to the various departments that you want to go to. So again, that's org. Here at Ministry Watch, some of those same stories. Um, We've been following as well, Liberty University and others, so you can read our version of some of those stories by going to Ministry Watch dot com. That's ministrywatch.com. And I also wanted to mention a couple of uh, housekeeping items before we go. If you like what you heard today, um, rate us on the podcast app. Uh, The podcast uh, ratings help us get discovered uh, on search engines. The more ratings we have, the more likely it is that other people will see our podcast. So please go and rate us and leave a comment while you're there as well. I read all the comments. I'm not able to respond to everyone on the podcast app. There's not a way to do that, but please know that I do read each and every one and often get a lot of really great uh, ideas from those comments as well. Or if the podcast app is a little too complicated for you, maybe you're just listening to this streaming from our website, you can, as the kids say, kick it old school and just tell a friend about the podcast. We are grateful for that. I know Michael and the folks at World would Be as well. Most of our new listeners come from just people telling other people about our podcast. And as Michael also mentioned, both World News Group and Ministry Watch are donor-supported ministries. You can uh, support us financially by going to our respective websites, wng.org or ministrywatch.com, and you'll be able to find a donate button prominently displayed on the front page of both of our websites. So again, Michael, thanks so much for being on the program today. It's been really great to chat with you, kind of get caught up personally uh, because you and I have known each other for a long time, but also just kind of peek a little bit behind the curtain at what's happening at World Magazine.
1: Uh, It was my pleasure, my friend. I I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and and best to you. Yeah,
0: thank you very much. Uh, The producer for today's program are Rich Rosel and Steve Gandy. We get database technical and editorial support from Kathy Goddard, Stephen DeBerry, Christina Darnell, and Casey Suddeth. I'm Warren Smith, and today my co-host has been Michael Renault. and you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.